Warning, this podcast contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. And listener must also be advised and reminded that all parties are innocent until proven guilty. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It does seem very premeditated, and some of my friends and I have been talking about that after the fact, that was he going on different dating sites to try to find someone? Was this a, you know, a process that he was going through to find, to find, this, to find the right person for this? Um, and who knows? Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen that has a very festive shirt on today. And socks. And socks. They don't match. The socks match. No, the the socks don't match the shirt. shirt. It's like a Japanese sea. It's a shirt from Aloha Western. I was going to say, it's it's like a modernized Tommy Bahama look. But like a Japanese. Shame on you. A Japanese wave. Yes, it's a Japanese wave, but it's a Western shirt because it's got snaps. That's a cool, cool, cool over, combination right cool there. Cool combo. I've yeah. never seen Billy so angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned Tommy Bahama. They're going to have me there's know, nothing, drinking, at, drinking at Margaritaville. There's nothing that's more opposite than Billy Jensen and Tommy Bahama. Thank right? you. As like Thank a you. vibe. That's the, honestly, that's the best uh, compliment you've ever given me, Jack. So I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Alexis is the villain again. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, by the way, before we get into the date, I just had to... I have two things to talk about before we get into the date. Number one is um, there's a really good dm that we got on our first degree instagram mm-hmm. page i don't know if you saw no. it it's still in the request just to you know bring it back up it says your podcast oh, it's from carrie billow dow your podcast is so good but alexa's breathing and mouth noises are so hard to listen to even ap- after episode 15 that's not true oh, wow. i don't mean episode this to be 15. rude but please fix that it's so hard to listen to i really think people now because we've said it just just they're they listening for it. it now. It's kind of like when you hear, yeah. when, like, if you have a car and your car is making a little bit of a sound, you've never heard it before, and then somebody gets into it and says, what's that sound? And then you're going to hear it forever. I've just had a million people, uh, way more than who have complained, say, we don't know what the hell anybody is talking about. No, I know. I agree. Especially recently. Whatever. That's why you. That's why you're in unaccepted DMs right now. <laughs> yeah, we're we're not going to read <laughs> we're that. Not, we're only going to talk about it on our podcast. Exactly. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about before we get into the date is I made a post on our Facebook page yeah. about what our listeners should be called. Whereas this ongoing debate, we can't figure it out. Blah 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 blah. We think that there. You guys are the firsties. I like it. Alexis hates it. I'm indifferent. What did you you like it? You've used I like it. it. Yeah, I think first people is voted, and that's what won. Yeah. yeah, and then I love how you put your thing in where it's like the names all suck. Let's keep thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that came in second. <laughs> that came in second, but first is until then. But I do have to really highlight um, a text that my mom sent me about our listeners. And this is what she said. She says, what about the PhDs for your first degree followers? Because a PhD is a degree and people who have them are smart. Then you can have the owl be your mascot and you can call him Firsty Van Hotling. <laughs> Firsty <laughs> Van Hotling is can, br- great. Then you can draw it like a rapper and have a gold chain around its neck of a hot dog. Ha ha, I'm a marketing genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, May. Oh, May. And then she texts me. She goes, dad's drawing Firsty Van Hotling right now because my dad's like a really good artist. So next animal I get, Firsty Van Hotlink is Firsty yeah. Van Hotlink the owl. So you I know love it. that's that's <laughs> solid. <laughs> so what's our uh, what's our holiday? Well, before I talk about the holiday, I just want to say that as a callback to one of our other episodes, I got to go inside Ted Bundy's. VW oh yeah, bug. how yeah. creepy was that? It was incredibly creepy. Yeah. So they have they have four cars there. One of them is OJ's Bronco, which is actually. Um, Al Cowling's Bronco, mm-hmm. the one from the chase. So they yeah. had that one. And because uh, I was there and I did an event there, they let me like actually go in and look inside Oof. and everything like that. So that one I got nothing from. It was just kind of cool to see that everybody, you know, there was millions of people like watching this car at one right, point, right. which is kind of interesting. Infamous Going car. into the Bundy car, um, that was, that was um, very eerie and very 
kind of, I just felt this dread because they had the, the seat out, Yeah, you know, I saw that. Um, and, uh, it was just, this is what this guy drove around it. And it was the one that he had in Salt Lake city, not the one that he stole in Florida. Oh God. What other cars did they have there? <sighs> they had, um, they had the movie car from Bonnie and Clyde. And they had, I think, Dillinger's car um, as well. So, mm. I mean, when you're thinking about true crime cars, the the top three have they have two of the top three. The other the other one would be um, probably JFK's. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, but let's get into the date. There were not many choices today, but I'm going to pick this one. It's a bleak day. National Tell an Old Joke Day. Oh my god, is that why you said that other joke earlier? Yes, but here's the joke I'm going to say, and it's also chicken related. To tell an old joke. Mm-hmm. Who was the greatest chicken killer in Shakespeare? Who? Macbeth. Because he did murder most foul. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good day. Um, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this... <laughs> okay, sorry, Billy. Go ahead. <laughs> because this could be you. It's with heavy heart that I address you today. After an exhaustive week of investigation, we are filing charges of aggravated murder, aggravated kidnapping, obstruction of justice, and desecration of a body in the homicide of Mackenzie Lewick. The announcement came after a Salt Lake City SWAT team arrested the 31-year-old suspect, Ayola Achaya, known as AJ. This man appeared to live a life of contradiction. He was kind to visitors and those who stayed in his home as Airbnb guests. But at other times, his temper would flare up and bubble over about inconsequential things. He joined the Army National Guard, but never attended training. He began studying computer science at Utah State University, but never graduated. Then in 2014, he became the suspect in a rape case, but the charges were dropped. Now, five years later, he again finds himself the subject of a police investigation, and he's accused of committing acts of unspeakable horror in regards to 23-year-old Mackenzie Lewick. So Mackenzie was a part-time student in her senior year at Utah State University, majoring in kinesthesiology and pre-nursing. She'd been a student at the university since 2014 and was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She also belonged to the Alpha Chi Omega sorority and the university and was active with with her sorority sisters. On June 17th, Mackenzie was returning from a trip back from her hometown of El Segundo, which is 10 minutes away from me, by the way, which is a beachside suburb of Los Angeles. And it's, it's kind of by LAX for mm-hmm. anybody that's like been to LA before. She was home under unfortunate circumstances attending the funeral of her grandma. Mackenzie's flight landed just after 1 a.m. and the last photos of her were taken at the Salt Lake City Airport after she deplaned. She was wearing a cream-colored sweater, had her hair pulled back in a ponytail, and was carrying a gray toe bag on her arm. Yeah, and she was dressed like you do when you're traveling. Just comfortable. She looked adorable. Comfy AF. So in this surveillance footage, she's smiling, and she's also texting a little bit. And over the course of approximately 31 minutes, she walks away from the jetway and gets her luggage, and she catches a lift. And in the footage... She didn't really appear to be talking to anyone at the airport, but she was texting people. So the lift picks her up and drives Mackenzie to a place called Hatch Park, which is actually 20 minutes from where she lived, almost eight miles from her apartment. And Hatch Park is your typical suburban park. It has a couple playgrounds. It has a ball field. And it's got a four-star Google review rating. And if you've ever read some Google reviews of public parks, they can be pretty brutal. Oh, my God. There's no park that has a good review. Yeah. yeah. This place was actually seems like a nice, safe place. And but people she's, are cruel. Those are ha- supposed to be safe, happy places for children. You're but, giving them one star reviews. But parks usually aren't as nice as yeah. you would assume and want a park to be. Yeah. But this is a nice park, nice suburban park. The driver drops her off at approximately 3 a.m. So any time you're going to a park at 3 a.m. It's a, that's a little strange. Yeah. 
And it's at this point that Mackenzie seems to go off the grid and her parents can't reach her. Right. And Mackenzie's parents become worried after not being able to reach her for an understandable reason, because they say that they're generally just in constant communication. And the last time her family had heard from her was right after she landed, as Billy mentioned. So, and at first, police didn't really know what to make of this, because in the initial reporting that I read, their stance was kind of conflicted as to whether or not any foul play was going on, because they were even saying in the reporting, you know, Mackenzie, just let us know you're okay. You're an adult. We want to respect your privacy. Mm -hmm. It seemed that they immediately went to, like, she's voluntarily missing. Yeah. She's with a guy, you know. Because other than Mackenzie's radio silence, there wasn't really any evidence to suggest that she was in any danger. But the concern for her parents was increasing when they continuously weren't able to reach her. So, and she was also absent from her social media, which apparently was not common for her. Then she missed classes. And then she wasn't on a planned flight to Los Angeles days later, which was for a wedding. And this is probably the most alarming. And she also missed a midterm. So... After this kind of non-contact persisted, they called police and reported her missing on June 20th. Two or three days after that morning, she was dropped off at the park. And I say two or three because it was the night of the 16th after oh, midnight. Early in the morning. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's really it's technically two, but it's really more like three. Yeah, and this is one of those cases where you've got family members who are, you know, there are certain children that are adults, but they are in constant contact with their parents. They talk to each other multiple times per day. Yeah. And if that stops, the parents are saying there's something wrong. And the police are still not... They've gotten a lot better because we've heard about stories that they have to wait this this amount of time, that yeah. amount of time from back in the day. They've gotten better, but they still, they still don't have that kind of nuance to say, okay, yes, she, she might be over 18, this arbitrary age that we put on being an adult. Yeah. But there's something off here. So the police get Mackenzie's cell phone data and they find out who the driver of the lift was that dropped her off after her flight landed. They obviously start probing him for info and they learn that he dropped Mackenzie off at the park and he said that she was met by someone who she appeared to have known. So we have to think about just a few months earlier than this, we've all heard the story about the University of South Carolina student Samantha Josephson, who went missing, was later found murdered, and she may have gotten into her killer's car mistakenly, believing that it was an Uber ride. A couple months before that, there was a story about an Uber driver in Arizona whose throat was slashed by a passenger. So when you hear that she took a ride share, especially kind of in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. it's easy to jump to conclusions that maybe the driver had something to do with the story. But through all the data on the app, fortunately, the Lyft driver could prove where he was immediately prior to picking Mackenzie up, the route that he took, and what he did immediately after he dropped her off. So remember around this time, the police are still dealing with Mackenzie's disappearance as someone that is voluntarily missing. But by June 24th, she's missing for a week. And... The police are still hopeful that there's not foul play involved. And one detective actually told USA Today that law enforcement believes that the interaction between Mackenzie and the man that she dropped off, uh, that she was dropped off with in the park, was quote unquote cordial. And that as an adult, she's entitled to privacy and to not contact her family if she doesn't want to. So they're still holding on to this, but it's still. It, it's getting there. And in the meantime, though, her friends and family are saying no, 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 yeah. and yeah. pushing back. I mean, she missed a midterm. She missed a flight. I mean, that's... You guys, if I miss anything, yeah, that's just not how I roll, yeah. please call the cops. However, at a certain point, the reporting on Mackenzie's disappearance started to shift. As if the police started realizing how serious the situation actually is and finally probably listening to our friends and family. They started urging the public for tips and they suggested that there was a severe cause for concern, stating that after discussions with her family and friends, we see no indication that she has gone off the grid before. This kind of behavior is uncharacteristic for her, according to them, which again has to be so frustrating to the people around them that were basically screaming at them to do something for so long. So... The police move forward with digging into her cell phone data further to try to find out what could have happened to Mackenzie. 
Mackenzie's cell phone records revealed that she was texting a number of people that night that she went missing. As we said, she texted her mother at 2.01 a.m., probably right when the plane landed, but before she got off the plane. And as we said on surveillance video, you see her texting other people. So police looked at the messages after the one to her mom and saw an exchange of several messages Mackenzie was having with a man named Majula Ajehi. The last text that came from her phone that morning was at 2.58 a.m. Her phone pinged at the park a few minutes before Ajehi's phone pinged in the very same area. The pair had been communicating via text on the day before and the day of Mackenzie's flight and when she went missing. So who exactly is this man? Now, for our first degree today, we have a woman named Sarah, and she met AJ, as he preferred to be called, on a dating app. He went by AJ on the dating app that I was using. And we talked for a little while on the dating app and then decided to exchange phone numbers and text with one another. And so we texted for a while and then decided to meet up. And I think it was me who made the first move to actually meet up, just based off of the conversations that we were having, which were normal and straightforward. And this is what I do for work. This is what I do for work. And, and nothing really beyond that. It's kind of nice to meet in person and get a feel for someone before, you know, you take it any further or you, or you see them more frequently. So it's nice just to meet up and say, all right, yes or no. So he uh, did look attractive in his photos and he had one of the photos in his army uniform, which is always nice to see and, and had a nice face and looked like a nice individual. He talked about, if I can remember correctly, uh, working for the Army and then being in the IT field. And that's something that I relate to and thought maybe we would have that in common. I don't recall anything being different about his profile, just a, a normal normal online dating app profile. So there was no flirting at all in the app or via text message, which was kind of nice because sometimes men get too flirty and it seems very strange that they get so flirty when you haven't actually spoken on the phone or met up in person. So I appreciated that there was no over-the-top flirting, that it was just very straightforward. This is what I'm doing, this is what you're doing, let's meet up for lunch, and that's it. As a dating app connoisseur myself, sometimes men get overly... Presumptuous. Presumptuous or sexual or like... uh, handsy kind of feeling like on a dating app mm-hmm. so it's probably nice to just have like a normal conversation you can see how it is it's a very mature way of going about a dating app where you're not getting ahead of yourself thinking that you're going to have an attraction and you just kind of see how it's going to be on a like a casual first date yeah and i am um, i don't do apps so i don't know what i'm talking about so ignore me <laughs> everyone thank god so as we all said to cut the bs and just see if there was a connection sarah and aj decided to meet in person to see if they had a connection is we did meet up for lunch and the the encounter was exceptionally strange. We decided to meet at a, a local place and I texted him from my car saying that I was there. He said that he was there as well uh, and I said I'd just go inside and wait for him. I stand inside and wait a um, couple of minutes and I text to see if he's coming in and, and he said, you know, I'm on a call, I'll just be a couple minutes more. So I ended up waiting in the front of the restaurant for about 10 minutes. And then he finally came in and was still on the phone call and just said, I am on a conference call that ran late, which can happen. That's, that's reasonable. It doesn't seem like it's you know, too unreasonable for that to happen. So he was on the call. We, we went and, and ordered. Um, it was one of those restaurants where you order and then you sit down. And so I ordered lunch and he didn't order anything, which seemed very strange to, to meet for lunch and to not order anything. And then we sat down. And he was still on the phone as I started eating. And then he finally got off the phone and um, it was very difficult to have a conversation with him. He couldn't really answer any of my questions. You know, I said, well, what about your friends at work? And, and he said, I don't have any. I just put, I just use my, wear my headphones and I don't talk to anyone. And that, that was a red flag to me of, of not having any friends at work and not really being able to talk about yourself or talk about things. All right, so he's an IT guy. I don't necessarily want to defend the IT guys, but I get it. And IT guys, if you have an IT guy, if you work in an office, 
if you have an IT person, because they're guy or gal, a, the guy or gal, yeah, a lot of times they will just listen to their headphones and not necessarily interact with people. But that that is not you know him saying that and this I don't have friends at work. A lot of people don't have friends at work. That's totally fine. But the idea that he cannot answer any of her questions. And be so closed off like that. That's when the red flags, I think, are going up. Well, it's kind of just like a couple different things. It's like the, continuing the conference call into lunch. Like, just say you're running late. And, and then show not ordering minutes. lunch. Not ordering lunch. That's the weirdest part to me is not ordering lunch. At least order like a, a drink. I think it's just strange to sit on a conference call while your date sitting across from you eating lunch a that you didn't get date. At first. Yeah. And you're like still on the phone. Sorry. sorry? Got my Bluetooth yeah. in. Like it's bizarro world. It is pretty bizarro. Just a bizarre guy. And, and that maybe the social skills weren't there. There was a lot of smiling. And so, I, you know, maybe he was uncomfortable. But then after a while, you can kind of tell if someone is just uncomfortable or nervous or if it's just something different. And it just felt like something different. It felt more beyond nervous because you can kind of help someone kind of calm down and and feel more relaxed um, as you're talking with them. And that just didn't ever happen. And so finally I just stopped talking and I ate my lunch. It was super awkward. Um, I think I said, well, I have to get back to get back to work. And I think the entire interaction maybe lasted 15, 20 minutes. So we weren't even sitting there for very long. Um, and I just said, I'm going to go back to work and, and left. And I remember going back to work and telling some of my coworkers that that was the weirdest lunch date that I've ever had. There was no communication. He was late. He was on the phone. It was just very strange. And, and we kind of had a laugh about it, but I felt just really weird about it after the fact. Even though we had a laugh, it just felt very weird. There was no, no further communication after that. Okay, so fast forward to present day. The cops are now taking a hard look at AJ. They find him, and he's cooperating with them on the surface. Looking carefully at his cell phone activity, and they're matching it up to Mackenzie's, and they're seeing a pattern. They're they're fitting together. So we know that Mackenzie's lift dropped her off at the park at 2.59 a.m. And both of their cell phone records place Mackenzie and AJ at the park at this time. And remember, this is 3 a.m. in the morning. Then, strangely, Mackenzie's cell phone is powered off right at 2.59 a.m. and is never powered back on. AJ's cell phone records prove that he was back at his home at 3.07 a.m. Just eight minutes later. And during preliminary discussions with AJ, he admits to having text conversations with Mackenzie on June 16th at around 6 p.m., but nothing after that time. And he actually also denies having any personal contact with Mackenzie or ever meeting her in the, in the meet space, ever meeting her physically. In person. In yeah. person at any time. Well, for an IT guy, he's not so sharp. I mean, by then, okay, so this is the thing. By then, how they were able to find him is via her cell phone. I know it is, is it? Yeah. So, as an IT guy, you think you'd be a little bit presumably, hey, if they've looked at my cell phone, then they've probably looked at her Lyft. They've probably contacted Lyft. They probably talked to the driver. My phone probably pinged from here at the same time. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing. Not such a sharp guy. No. No. He should not have had his headphones on. He should have been talking to his coworkers. He might have learned a thing or two. For real. So after AJ told the police that he didn't know what Mackenzie looked like, they ended up finding at least one photo of her in his possession. And after speaking to some of her friends, they learned that many of them were aware of AJ. So they confirmed that the two were acquainted enough for her to even be talking about him to her friends. So AJ lying about knowing Mackenzie is an huge red flag. And since it appeared that he was the last person to see and communicate with her, the police felt like they had enough to secure a search warrant for his home. The warrant was executed on June 26th, which was 11 days after Mackenzie's disappearance. Sarah recalls what it was like to hear AJ's name in connection with a missing woman. So this date happened last fall. And then, of course, the news broke, um, you know, this early this summer um, about the missing, missing woman. And I didn't, I saw that it was happening and, and, um, 
didn't really relate to it until I was reading an article on one of the local newspapers and there was a link to his LinkedIn profile and I clicked on that and saw his face and I don't even know how to describe that feeling. It was nothing like I'd ever had before. So as the police approach AJ's home to deliver the warrant, they encounter one of AJ's neighbors and the neighbor actually tells the police that they had observed AJ burning something in his backyard using gasoline. In fact, they had observed two fires, one on June 17th and the second on June 18th, which coincides with Mackenzie's disappearance, the night she went missing, the night slash day, and the following day as well. And the neighbor said the smell emanating from the fire was horrible. And he'd actually seen AJ pouring gasoline on the fire using a red gas can. So police commence with their search. And in the backyard, they find a freshly dug sort of disturbed site that's filled with charred material. And this is presumably where the fire was set. And the site was searched extensively. And what they discover is unnerving, uh, to say that the very, very least. So they find human bone, muscular tissue, a piece of a scalp with hair, a charred cell phone, and other burnt personal items. Then in this alleyway next to the home, the police discover this charred black fabric, some buckles from clothing, and other items that they describe as being of evidentiary value. Then they go and search AJ's vehicle. They look inside, then they open the trunk, and they're hit with this really strong smell of gasoline. And inside the trunk, they find this red gasoline can. They start investigating this gas can, and they find out that AJ purchased a red gas can near his residence at approximately 9 a.m. on June 17th. And remember, that was the day that Mackenzie vanished. So investigators, they also seize about a dozen boxes of ammunition from his home and also a pitchfork. And while they're searching the home, they find something that they tag as pretty odd. There were cameras in every room, including several in the master bedroom facing the bed. So this is all adding up. You've got human remains. You've got a, a fresh, freshly dug site. You've got the cell phone. The cops are pretty sure that this is where Mackenzie met her fate, but they would need to conduct DNA testing to figure it out and actually be sure. And when the results are returned, it's revealed that the muscular tissue that they found in AJ's backyard was a match. It was a profile that was consistent with Mackenzie. I didn't. I didn't even really know what to think. Other, you know, my first thought was, "Oh my gosh, I know this person." And then second was, "This is just awful. This is so awful. How could this have happened to this young woman?" Um, you know, just this terrible thing had happened to her. And then all the what if. You know, what if that had been me? Uh, what if it had been somebody I know? You know, just all of the what ifs and, and maybe I escaped something maybe the rest of us who did meet up with him or had conversations with him on dating apps escaped this uh, it's, it's just absolutely terrible and I feel I feel terrible for the family having to go through this I can't imagine the day that they arrested him I was checking a lot of different social media platforms and news outlets because I just wanted to consume as much as I could and it really messed with my mental health that day and I had to stop and I ended up going out of town with family and it was so nice not to see any of it and not to be part of any of it and I came back and then had a nightmare the night I came back that someone was someone that I had met on a dating app was hurting my family and and I could see in my dream what they had actually done to my family and it was it was so overwhelming and it still feels overwhelming AJ was arrested, so they were able to arrest him on suspicion of murder, desecration of a corpse, kidnapping. So, but just because you're arrested, generally, once you are arrested, the DA's office has a certain amount of time to actually formally charge you. And 
bring you to an arraignment so you know what charges you're facing. And that time limit actually varies by state. In Utah, it's 72 hours. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they got a special sort of waiver from the court to extend that time. Because what we were dealing with here is obviously they were presuming Mackenzie dead, unfortunately, due to the evidence that was found in his backyard. So they knew that they probably had a homicide. They didn't want him out. So this was a kind of a special circumstance where they were able to arrest him, but they were delaying the formal charges being read. They were delaying the actual arraignment of charges. So at this phase in the investigation, as we all know, any of you have heard of this case, the national news media sort of dug in and had started following it carefully and started people who had known him started coming forward because they were seeing this news coverage and realizing, hey, I met this guy or had this interaction with this guy, AJ. So one of the most chilling stories that came about was from a Utah construction contractor who came forward with a story about a job AJ solicited from him. So the contractor's name was Brian Wolf, and he said that in April, so just months before this incident, AJ wanted him to build a secret soundproof room underneath the porch of his home. He wanted hooks mounted high on a concrete wall, and he wanted a fingerprint thumb lock. And the construction, the contractor got a little weirded out by this and asked him why he wanted these things. AJ said that he wanted to hide alcohol from his Mormon girlfriend and he wanted to be able to blast music in this soundproof room. And I, uh, I also know that at one point, you know, he's like, I want to put wine racks up on these hooks. Yeah. And he's like, I'll just, I can build you a wine rack for the same price. Just let me do it. And he's like, Nope, I want the hooks. He needs the hooks. I want the hooks. So, you know, the contractor responded and he said in an interview, you know, as soon as he said he wanted these hooks and he said he wanted them above head height. It was like eight feet and high. He's, he's six feet tall, AJ. So he's like, why do you need hooks up there? And at, at this point, he's he kind of bowed out of the job. He's like, "Guy, dude, I can't I can't do this. And so when this contractor saw the reports of AJ's arrest, he immediately called the police to report the encounter. And in a subsequent interview, the contractor said, Some people say I should have called the cops then. But how am I supposed to call the cops and be like, hey, this guy wants me to build a weird room in his basement. And he's right because Mm -hmm. she's missing and the cops didn't even. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, way to blame that guy. Exactly. And this kind of uh, reminds us, you know, this was a basement room and this kind of is uh, a throwback to last week's episode with Katie Beers. Yeah, but the thing is, is that Esposito built his own, built his own. So there was nobody to to narc on him. Well, you know what this reminds me of too is the HH Holmes. Mm-hmm. So what he would yes. do is yeah. he would have uh, groups of contractors build wings <laughs> of his house and then fire them so yeah. that they couldn't know yeah. the rest of the house. Yeah. It's yeah the the details about the basement. Um, you know that he wanted a contractor to build something like that tells just tells us like that he's been planning something like this for a while that he's had these ideas in his mind and further than having the ideas is that he wanted to take action on those and that's exceptionally scary and yeah you you know you meet people on dating apps and and you know you you just trust that that they're not going to do these types of things and and the risk of something happening is extremely low um and and you just you can't live your life in a bubble um and but the the news of what what he did and, and what happened to her is just horrific and it's really difficult to talk about and really difficult to think about um, that happening to her or happening to anyone, frankly. So it was also revealed that AJ had been married before. In June of 2011, he married Tanisha Jenkins in Dallas, Texas, and we haven't found much background info on this relationship in terms of how they met or anything. And there's nothing really about it or about the wedding on social media. Tanisha, she began speaking to the media here and there, and there are things that we know. 
and she alleged that she hasn't lived with AJ for years. She said that she is, quote, I'm so disappointed in him. I don't know much else to say. And she also said that she thinks that he committed the crime because he had once threatened her. And the Daily Mail spoke with her. And in an interview, she alleged that he once slashed her with a knife and left her with a scar. And she said that they hadn't seen each other for years. And she actually went into hiding and changed her phone number due to these violent outbursts. AJ and Tanisha actually finalized their divorce in January of 2019. uh, And their marriage actually was legal for nearly eight years. And a former roommate of AJ's named Shikari Moore lived with him for a few months and told the Salt Lake Tribune that he was an Airbnb host who was intelligent and had a good relationship with his clients. And a spokesman for Airbnb investigated and confirmed that he did previously have this Airbnb. He said that AJ was the kind of guy that was like, hey, let's go to the Asian supermarket and buy a couple of crabs and go back to my house and eat, which is a very specific way of de- describing somebody. But, you know, he said that he invited women over, but he didn't seem to have any long term relationships. And he said that he was never aware that AJ had ever been married, which kind of goes along with what uh, Billy was saying. However, he would suddenly become irate and disruptive over really small things like little disagreements about how furniture was arranged. And Shikari said that he doesn't like to be told anything other than his way. He snaps or loses his temper and then he comes back to his sweet self. But still, he said that he never saw AJ act violently. So on the heels of something you just said, Jack, he would have women over. Yeah. So that's interesting. Let's hear from Sarah now on another thing having to do with women who AJ was in contact with at this time. I do know that um, in some of the groups that I'm in on Facebook, other women have come forward and said, uh, you know, I had conversations with this person and he said some very scary things about things that he wanted to do and tools and all sorts of things that precluded them precluded them from even meeting him in person so you know if, if he hadn't been caught this this who knows what he could have done but it's very interesting that he did things so publicly that he would absolutely get caught so you wonder did he did he do the actions that he did um with the body because he wanted to get caught or you know what, what was the motivation behind that so the other women that i've that have come forward that I'm aware of have just been in similar, you know, political and, and religious Facebook groups that I'm in. And uh, they, as soon as the news broke, probably felt the same way that I did, where you, you just needed to talk about it. You needed to say it out loud because it was real in front of you. But was it actually real? Was this actually a thing? And, you know, then you needed the support of people around you to say, oh my gosh, how awful. And thank goodness this wasn't you. One of the people in in one of my Facebook groups did reveal some things that he had said about um, ways that he wanted to torture her. But those those weren't my interactions. It was just something that I saw in a a comment section in a Facebook group. Um, And and frankly, when I saw that, I just sort of glossed over it because I, I wasn't prepared to even read that, prepared to even handle that. So, Jack, you said you were a dating app connoisseur. <laughs> aficionado, I think she said. It was an aficionado or connoisseur, I guess. What are, what are the right, I mean, there are certain red flags, but there are certain people that you might start talking to that they might say stuff within the first three or four interactions that you're just like, oh, I'm done. And then that's it. Yeah, Any but, sort of neg. The, well, the thing is, it's like the dating apps are like the Wild West and people really say a bunch of crazy shit all the time. So it's not even like out of context, the, super fucked up. All the ways I want to torture you, super fucked up. But I'm so jaded with dating apps and so are probably so many people that use them. that You might see that from just a random person and be like, freak, and then not think anything of it, you know, mm-hmm. where there are like, I mean people are also like throwing dick pics out all over the place so it's kind of just 
you just assume it's, the worst and it's deviant to, to yeah. send an unsolicited dick pic i mean i think we're all desensitized to it but it's the equivalent of being like a flasher yeah, yeah. It, but with less risk because you're not in public and no one can beat you up imminently right. at least but yeah no i think we've all just gotten used to this behavior that's really really problematic and scary well and it's interesting because with our first degree connection he wasn't overtly creepy and sinister to her through the dating apps but apparently he is to other people so it's interesting that it wasn't as um much of like a connective kind of thing so another person who came forward was actually aj's housekeeper who said that she was hired by him to clean his house and the first time she got there he asked, and I don't know how he knew this, but asked her to bring her daughter, her young daughter next time. And she noticed all the cameras in the, in the house. And she, she got really freaked out by him. And after she heard about the arrest, she's like, Oh my God, it's so weird because he had this charisma. It really reminded me of Ted Bundy. And then what's interesting is, I mean, obviously Ted Bundy had a reign of terror in, in uh salt lake city and he was only just a couple miles from where aj lived so i thought that was really funny and then another thing that's really interesting is that so we mentioned aj dabbled in modeling and he basically had like some profiles on some modeling websites and he was going to some mixers in utah trying to join uh, a modeling agency there and he approached a woman who owned a modeling agency at a mixer and he made her super 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 uncomfortable and started reaching out on social media and just like having no sense of boundary whatsoever. And she ended up just like cutting off all communication. But he was really trying to get her to represent him. And uh, yeah, it's all, the it's all super, real. super interesting. And on these dating sites, too, I mean, on these modeling sites also, he described himself tall, buffed, funny, a victim, romantic, violent, and a character actor. So he was not only a model... He was also an author. And he self-published a book called Forge Identity. And looking on Goodreads, the novel is about a man drawn to crime after witnessing gruesome murders at the age of 15. Now, this book was listed for sale on Amazon, but it was actually pulled as AJ's involvement in Mackenzie's disappearance was revealed. So this is what the Amazon bio reads. They say he was born and raised in Africa. He'd been a salesman, an entrepreneur, and a writer. He survived a tyrannical dictatorship. He escaped a real-life crime. He traveled internationally. He excelled professionally in several industries and is currently curating a multi-platform advertising campaign for his debut novel, Forge Identity, a sample of which can be found on Kindle. So I know you guys are very interested in what the plot line of this book could be. So the book follows a teenager who witnesses his neighbor burn to death. And there are a lot of chilling parallels between the subject matter of the book and the crime that AJ stands accused of. All right, so here is a synopsis of... Forge Identity. Ezekiel was almost 15 when he witnessed a gruesome murder. An angry mob burned his neighbor alive in the street and the man died at his feet. Sadly, it was not the last time he witnessed such horror. With his well-respected father as guide and mentor, Ezekiel saw his death, then a death much closer to home when a loved one was killed in the same brutal terrifying way 50 feet from him and he could do nothing to stop it staggering to recover from these severe traumas he finds relief and joy in meeting his first love becomes embroiled in grand theft and experiences heartbreaking betrayal ezekiel must, must decide if he will join the ranks of a criminal mastermind or fight to escape the tyranny that has surrounded his young life or even beat him at their own game what trust is lost, can he even trust himself? I don't fucking even understand what that means. It's gibberish. She's not a, the sharpest writer in the shed. <laughs> That's not even a thing. I said made it up. He's <laughs> like he made up shittyit. No, this guy is a shittyit. Um, the book claims to be inspired by true events, and AJ began advertising the story only one year before Mackenzie was killed. 
And the reviews for the book are so, so bad. If you would like to go to Goodreads and snatch them up right now, there isn't a good one. And also, apparently, the grammar and spelling are atrocious that you can't even get into the storyline. So based on all these reviews, he wasn't supporting himself from the revenue, obviously, generated by his writing. So what did he do for a job? So by all accounts, he was a computer IT specialist. His LinkedIn, which has since been removed, he wrote that he studied first at London South Bank University, but that university said they had no record of attending that school in London. He also had claims that he had been a U.S. Army information technology specialist, but weirdly that would have contradicted his time at university. So there's a lot of lies and perhaps even stolen valor going on here as far as his claims to military service. And basically... In the years preceding this horrible, horrible event, he had been a contract employee at a number of places, including Salt Lake City's Goldman Sachs location and Dell's Draper office, although he was no longer employed by July of 2018. And interestingly, also, I mean, he was enrolled in the University of Utah multiple times and he never graduated with a degree. And at first glance, he seems like he doesn't have a record. But there were a lot of things going on in his past that suggest something different. And he had actually been suspected of raping a co-worker in 2014, but the investigation was dropped after the woman decided not to press charges. And that's according to records provided by the North Park Police Department. There was also a report from Utah State University that said that the university wanted to charge him with a Class B misdemeanor for stealing an iPad. But when reporters and investigators tried to reconstruct this background, Utah's court database said there's no listing of these charges being filed. And a piece of the puzzle was eventually solved when an employee at the jail confirmed that the records of AJ and his past deeds had been expunged. The DA's office also said that there was no record of the case, and this lack of documentation corroborates that AJ went through Utah's legal process of having his prosecution erased from the public record. So Billy had mentioned in the bio that AJ was from Nigeria, so what brought him to Utah in the first place? So he moved to Utah in 2009 to take classes at Utah State University on a student visa. Shortly after he got there, he was baptized in the, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the man who helped him convert was a missionary named Logan Dill. And he did an interview to talk about his experience with AJ. And he was saying that AJ was very interested in the faith. And he said, quote, it was just a really cool experience. Things moved very quickly. He just soaked everything up. He found some instant friends. You know, people were very warm and welcoming and accepting him right away. And he knew AJ as a quote-unquote joy, and he said that he made everybody around him feel comfortable. He was a very happy person. He joked all the time. So those are kind of the broad strokes on this dude that we're talking about in this episode. But let's get back to sort of the investigation. What we can't really deny here and what people are talking about is just a level of possible premeditation. Mm -hmm. We've got a room. We've got these chilling excerpts from this book. We've got, you know, the contractor, the things he said he wanted in this room. All of that stuff seems very telling. It does seem very premeditated. And some of my friends might have been talking about that after the fact that was he going on different dating sites to try to find someone? Was this a you know a process that he was going through to find to find this to find the right person for this? Um, and who knows that that could be the case that he was just screening women and and you know I don't know. There are a lot of things that have come out you know about his, a book that he had written and uh, like the modeling and and other things you know like the building the the stuff in the basement. And people have said, you know, well, why wasn't he arrested? Why didn't something happen? And there's nothing that anybody could have done. There's nothing that um, would have said, you know, this is an illegal activity and we need to take action. So there's nothing that anybody could have done to prevent this. 
And that's part of it even being scarier, right, is how do you know that these things are going to happen? You don't. So as a reminder, this is an active case. And at this point in the investigation, this was like a month ago. So while Mackenzie was still missing, they were exploring this person who was their person of interest. And that was sort of what they were able to uncover during this time. So obviously, they're still uncovering evidence at this time, and they're still uncovering evidence pertinent to the case. And it was also uh, announced that they unearthed a bunch of evidence in the Jordan River, which is a river in Utah. And they were doing some random outreach with the homeless population when they came across some evidence that was connected to Mackenzie. And they found apparently multiple items, but they have not released what those items are. But what this does tell us is that he was taking precautions in just scattering evidence kind of everywhere. I mean, we've heard now a few different places where they were able to uncover evidence. And that's, you know, premeditated again. Yeah. And on July 3rd, they announce a breakthrough. And it's a bleak breakthrough. They are still analyzing AJ's cell phone. And it actually places him 85 miles north of Salt Lake City in Logan Canyon on June 25th between 2.30 p.m. and 4.30 p.m., which was actually a few days before his arrest. Law enforcement go to the canyon, and they search all around, and it's kind of a, and they find a disturbed area of soil under this grove of trees. And under the soil, in a shallow grave, they discover a charred human body. DNA testing of the body returns a profile consistent with Mackenzie. The body had its arms bound behind her back. Her body was partially burned, and there was a hole in her scalp where obvious trauma had been inflicted. AJ was officially charged with Mackenzie's murder after the body was found. And the medical examiner determined that Mackenzie had suffered blunt force trauma to the left side of her skull, resulting in significant intracranial hemorrhaging, which would have been fatal. So at AJ's first court appearance, he uttered only three words during a video appearance from the Salt Lake City County Jail. After the judge said, good morning, Mr. Ajahi, he replied, good morning, sir, and then stood emotionless as he listened to the four charges against him. Aggravated murder, aggravated kidnapping, obstruction of justice, and desecration of a human body. And there had been all these murmurs circulating about the case being a death penalty case, the circulating online and throughout social media. And the DA gave a reminder during the press conference that AJ is presumed innocent unless his eventual trial finds him guilty. And he emphasized that numerous times during the news conference that the investigation is still ongoing. So Mackenzie's murder obviously continues to spark grief from her sorority sisters and all who knew her, including her family who live here and we're in our hometown. I mean, hometown, but they live a few miles away from us. It's really sad to think about, actually. And um, her sorority sisters recalled that she was a ball of light. And the University of Utah student government hosted a vigil on the lawn that drew hundreds and hundreds of mourners. And at the vigil, friends and family held up signs celebrating her life. Mackenzie's friend Kennedy said in a media interview, why Kenzie? What did she do to deserve this? Why burn half of her body? Another friend said, I think we're all in extreme shock. Even right now, I feel like I can call her and text her and she'll answer. We didn't get to say goodbye to our friend. This person stole our friend from us. So I don't know if we'll ever really have closure. No matter what happens with this case, any answer that we get will never justify this in our opinions. And we have to move on. But right now, we just want to make sure that Kenzie gets the justice she deserves. Before Mackenzie's disappearance, as much like any other college student, she was really just living a normal life for a 23-year-old. 
She was the only girl among four siblings. And when she was in high school, she was on the water polo and swim teams. She had a ton of philanthropic interests, including in high school, helping to set up the school's breast cancer awareness club. It's really sad. This definitely has changed how I move forward and and what I I'm still on dating apps. And now it makes me think about the ways that I interact with people and really the information that I tell them. And there was one um, one guy recently who was asking me questions about where I was going on vacation, what day I was leaving, who I was going with. And I just didn't answer those questions because of this exact thing. What is, what is he trying to find out? What is he trying to understand? And so you're almost defensive with everybody that you meet. And you really have to say, you know, what, what are they trying to get out of me? And I can't give away too much for them to be able to find me and locate me. And that's scary. And the same time that I am saying that, I place no blame on, on Mackenzie. She did nothing wrong. He did everything wrong. There's nothing that she could have done differently or that she did incorrectly. And I think that's one of the one of the worst things that's come out of this is a lot of victim blaming. And it's really difficult to see that. And I think that's been just as hard as knowing that I had an encounter with this individual is to see what sort of blame is being placed on her. It, it's truly sickening to see that. I will continue to support and fight for women's rights in my community and not spend time trying to educate, re-educate those who aren't open to that education. It's not its not worth any of our time. I think it's more difficult in a very conservative state and city, uh, like in Salt Lake City, Utah, where a lot of people here blame women for a lot of things, uh, that, that they dress too provocatively, that they put themselves in harmful situations, that, that if they did something different then this wouldn't have happened. and. Uh, that's simply untrue. It's absolutely untrue. And so I'll continue fighting, and, and the people that I associate with will continue fighting in our community to help change those attitudes and those beliefs. Uh, but the internet is not the right place to do that. Yeah, so it's not just Utah, it's the internet as a whole. There's been talk of Mackenzie partaking in sugar daddy uh, slash sugar baby relationships. That's going on online, and there's a lot of victim blaming there. Seeing the people's responses is pretty vile. There's one person to blame for this, and that is the killer, and that's it. And we see this a lot with, you know, victims of sex trafficking or sex workers, and they're viewed as somebody else. They're not viewed as as people. They're viewed as, as something different. And it's pretty disgusting. And it's disgusting that the way that they, that the media is classifying them as she didn't deserve to be killed. She didn't ask for what happened to her. There's one person, there's one entity that is responsible for her murder and that's her killer. Right. And even if it wasn't this sugar baby conversation happening in the victim blaming world, people you know, I've seen things in the comments about her being blamed for going and meeting a stranger in a park at 3am, supposedly from a dating website. And I've seen that like in many different situations, whether that be like a rape case or something where, you know, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation where it should never be the person's fault. I've invited random strangers that I've met on Tinder over to my apartment before that I did not vet and I didn't know anything about. So what is that doesn't make me any smarter than her, you know, and it doesn't make her, you know, making all these mistakes and should be blamed for something that happened to her. I've made way more worse decisions than this a million times percent absolutely so on the heels of that so the idea that people say you know she shouldn't have done this or this right this guy was building a creepy scary room in his house he was writing murder books when people say women don't dress like this or you'll be killed don't go here or you'll be killed it's like this guy was going to kill someone yeah if not her, yeah. 
a more, you know, somebody else who is doing those things. It wasn't just like an opportunistic thing that it was like, oh, well, you know, it was perfect place, but perfect time. People are being all pious on their weird advice, their victim blaming advice. But that doesn't save anyone. That doesn't save a, save a single woman. No. What we need is these predators to be stopped yeah and stricter laws about them but women changing their behavior if they're gonna do this they're gonna do it like if it's not if it wouldn't have been her that night it would have been somebody else so i'm sorry your weird judgy advice doesn't save anybody we've obviously established in multiple episodes the problems with the media and their biases and how that can be difficult especially here when we were sensing and picking up on some victim blaming but what we can't deny, and Billy, you are an expert on this, it's like media coverage, social media, viral sort of status to cases really helps them get solved. Absolutely. You know, um, it, it sucks in a lot of ways, but it really does help. Like the more eyes on a case, the more clues you get. And Sarah does offer in our conversation a really key point about how the media in this case did play a role in getting answers sooner than in other cases. And this is a topic Sarah is super passionate about, so I want to let her weigh in. Um, I did want to use this platform to talk about uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and just the fact that, and I, and I, I hope that this makes it on air because this is the reason that I'm doing this. Um, but there was so much news coverage about Mackenzie and, you know, I, I remember getting my vehicle service that day and, and it was on the news. Nothing else was playing just for hours and hours and hours. Facebook is blowing up, um, a social media, all the news sites. And it made me think about the lack of coverage for other missing women and why, why this is happening in this case. But, you know, a woman goes missing a couple weeks earlier She's native from a small town in, Monta in in Utah, and there's no coverage. There's maybe one news story. I didn't even hear about it. And I think, what if we covered every missing woman? What if we covered every missing woman on Facebook, on all social media platforms, in the news? Would, would that finally change things? Would that finally help our community to recognize and help solve these missing, missing women stories? Um, you know, there are there are children growing up without their mothers because they've been murdered or they're, they're simply missing. There are indigenous women who go missing weekly and we're not telling their stories. And their stories are equally as powerful and equally as important as McKinsey's. This happens all the time and we're not talking about it. And Mackenzie's friends and sorority sisters are committed to not letting her be forgotten. They started a nonprofit called Mackenzie's Voice, and one of her sorority sisters who helped start the nonprofit explains that when Mackenzie went missing, the first thing we said is, what do we do? What is there to do? Helping others figure out what to do what to do when their loved one goes missing is the motivation behind Mackenzie's voice. We learn that there's not really a handbook or a manual or a toolkit for friends or family members when their friend goes missing. The nonprofit organization is hoping to provide that toolkit with resources such as media lists and guidelines for statements. Helping families with grief and trauma counseling for advocating for victims, Mackenzie's Voice is also hoping to provide educational opportunities for young men and women about safe online dating practices. So what do we learn today? So I think what we learned today, and this is a phrase I use a lot, and maybe everybody hates it. I know Jack probably does. What? The cosmic shuffling of the deck. Why do I hate that? I actually really like you that do? phrase. Yeah. I don't know, because I say it a lot. It reminds me of like the other annoying things I say <laughs> redundantly. But it's. I think what we learned today is that there are some things you just cannot anticipate. In this world of technology, dating apps are the norm. Many people we know have had incredible experiences married the people they met on tinder bumble okay cupid plenty of fish there are a million more positive stories than there are negative and yeah most people are good yes at the end of the day so it is it is just a numbers game and like we were saying we were talking kind of when we weren't recording too where alexis and i have both done weird fucking shit way weirder than this from way like people weirder think, than this you know 
the circumstances of this case, whatever risk you assign to it. It's like, I've I've done it 20 times made irresponsible decisions and come out totally fine on the other end and have most people in this, most women that are out there dating. Yes. And bottom line is, uh, Mackenzie was a 23 year old girl doing normal exploratory things should not be blamed. And I'm sorry, like whoever is blaming her, a woman in your life who you respect and love Mm -hmm. has done worse or the same. Absolutely. Because this is just what women do when they're growing up to just explore who they are. And she did not deserve to have any time or life stolen from her as a result. And the only person to blame in this situation is the monster who took her life. Um, Well, big thanks to Sarah, our first degree connection, who she reached out to us on Facebook, right? No, she reached out to, I think I saw her on, in one of the, in drink arenas. Yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, drink arena. Yeah, drink arenas. Yeah. When this case was unfolding, there were a couple girls that were yeah. like, "Holy shit, I've gone on a date with this piece of shit," and uh, that's kind of how we started talking to her to get mm-hmm. her on the case or on the episode. So, thank you, Sarah. And um, if anybody that is listening has a connection to a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us. Hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com or on Instagram at thefirstdegree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen or at Jack Vanek. We're checking our DMs. Also, go We're not checking our negative DMs. <laughs> except Whoever you are. I'm calling Alexis out for all of them. Um, go buy some merch. Uh, link in our bio on our Instagram. Uh, we see you guys getting your merch and we're reposting as we get them. So until next time, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not, not that, that close. close. Happy whatever day it was. I was getting a drink when you said it day.